Besides being absolutely soaked. Yeah, I'm, I'm really soaked. I, I had to walk here through a rainstorm. Yeah. Like proper drenching rainstorm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've just bullied you into not smoking your, uh, what do you call it, electronic cigarette? My puffer. Your puffer. Yeah. So no one else calls it that except for me. Yeah. I call my inhaler a puffer. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah. I, well, I did when I was a child. I suppose I shouldn't do that anymore. That's quite a childish thing to call it. I don't like calling it an electronic cigarette. For one thing, it's too long. Yeah. For another thing, it just sounds dorky. Do you know what I like? Just because I, it's extra dorky is vape. No, that's that's even dorkier. Nice vape. Yeah, no, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's, me, it's probably the worst verb that's ever been invented. It just sounds... I'm vaping. It sounds scuzzy. Yeah. You know? Well, the thing is, right, it, but that, would, that should make it cool. But it doesn't. No. It's the other... It Scuzzy's not cool. Sure it is. No. Isn't it? Rarely. Uh, not anymore, I suppose. Back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the, the golden age of scuzz. Yes. We, our music, music was called grunge. You don't... Scuzzy is a, weird, is a word you don't hear over here so much. I don't think we even say it in Canada. Oh, really? But I've been away so long, I have no idea. You know what it means, though, right? It just means, like, dirty. No, not dirty. It's kind of like, yes, sort of dirty, but there's a real down-marketness to it. Okay. Like, you might hear, say, um, manky or minging or kind of... Um, is there a class undertone? There like, is a little bit of right, a class okay. undertone to it. Um, yeah. So chavvy. Yeah, maybe, but not not Not, not as bad that, as that. Cl- that much of a class undertone. Okay. Just like a, a hint of class. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that's a nice start. Just a hint. Yes. Um, what have you been doing today, other than getting soaked? Um, have you been doing your running? I did go for a run today. Yes. I did. I also went to a Pilates class. Ah, very I, good. I dropped off some flyers hmm. that are going to be for my event. Oh, yeah. Which are going to be distributed at Bad Language tonight. Oh, um, it, like, is it a guerrilla marketing? No, I just asked. He allows it. Yeah, of course. Oh. Bad language are very supportive. It's so friendly, the literature scene, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If it was Edinburgh, they would take your fucking head off. <laughs> no, everyone, everyone here is happy to share flyers and host, you know, happy to spread the word. Does flyers, do flyers work? I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that you, if you're trying to publicize a literary event, um, you have to you obviously use social media. Yes, I've heard of it. But not everyone is on social media. And what? Yeah, I know. I know it's true. Yeah, like people's grandma. They're not on it. Well, I mean, I don't want to I don't wanna get all ageist about it, Rob. <laughs> but some... Why not? We're, we're already classist. Hey, no, no. Some people well. our age aren't on it, you know? There are, you have your deniers and people who are on it but aren't as active on it or don't follow us on social media mm-hmm. for some unknown reason. I know. So... 
you know, also there's people who aren't aware of the real story at all. I know it's hard to imagine. I, I can't believe right? it. Right? But Creative it's nonfiction is setting the world alight. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so the hope is that by get, getting these flyers out, which I've designed myself, mm. um, and they look pretty shit hot this time, I'll tell you. Have you got one? Uh, I don't. I'm, I'm so sorry I don't. Yeah. I just handed off my supply. I'm picking up some more tomorrow. See, I just wanted to criticize your design. That's uh, why I wanted well, to. So now I can't. You, Maybe you it is be really able cool. To anyway. Yeah. Whoa, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. It's too bad it's wasted on a literature night. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're going to be talking about loads of stuff today. We are? Loads of literature stuff. That's what we do. Yeah. This um, hot button issues. You're the journalism uh, lecturer. Do they still say hot button? No. Nobody says hot button issues. It's hot button. No. This, this Controversial. Button is, this button is like scorching. Yep. Don't push it. <laughs> right. Shall I take over now? I'm in a strange mood. I don't know why. I, all of a sudden, just... And I wasn't until I hit record. Sometimes it happens. That the way. magic. Right. Okay. So I know what that sign means. Move along, Rob. <laughs> Which, what of these many things should we talk about first? Should we do reviews, talk about reviews, talk about... Um... Let's talk about the reviews. Okay. Because that's... I think that's really interesting. So okay. this is essentially, a, there's been a bit of controversy mm -hmm. over a review that Julie Meyerson published in The Guardian. Julie. Uh, Julie Meyerson. Yeah. That's what I said. I thought you said Julian. No, I said okay. Julie. Right. Um, Sorry. It's okay. Um, of Charlene Theo's debut novel, Ponty, which I have not read and you have not read. No. So I've also not read any of Julie Meyerson's work. Me neither. Um, I've never even read one of her reviews knowingly before. Another so, have I. Why are we yeah. the people to talk about this? Well, because we've both read this review, yeah. which caused a great old shitstorm on the Twitter. The funny thing is, we both read it and we're both pissed off about it for different reasons. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So why are you pissed off I'm about pissed it? off about it. Because of the dis, this is on MAs in creative writing. That's the thing that stuck out for me. I just thought, first of all, there's no. I don't think. Yeah, I think only the only people that uh, criticize M, cre creative MA novels are the ones who have nothing to do with creative MAs and don't have, have no idea what goes on. Mm. Because if there's one thing I I've learned, and I, I'm listen, I'm no fan of creative M. I've, I've ranted about mine on this. A hundred times, but the the good thing about it is that they the they encourage you to be more exper experimental. Mm. Um, they encourage you to take risks um, and you know break rules and write your story the best way it can be written. And people seem to have it in their heads that um, it's some kind of formulaic thing to get published, and that just wasn't my because that, that's what I thought going in. I thought because that's why I, I went because I wanted to get published. Mm. But it doesn't seem, I was really surprised at how little of that there is of, um, I expect it to be a lot of, well, if you want agents to write your, to read your work, then you have to do A, B, C, D, and E. And if you want to, you know, this is what a book blurb is supposed to be right. like. And, you know, Practical. there's, a, I mean, there's, there's a bit of that. Mm -hmm. But the bulk of it is getting you to read experimental novels and change your work, you know, make your work more experimental rather than less. Mm -hmm. So for someone to say, these, this is, this is what a, an MA in creative writing novel is, is utter bullshit because mm -hmm. they're all they, they couldn't be more different from each other. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what pissed me off about it, and 
to be fair, I didn't get really pissed off about it. Mm. But what I thought was annoying about it and perhaps unfair was that um, she was clearly, from the way that the review was structured, started off by talking about making a point about what a privileged position the writer was in with a blurb from Ian McEwan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here arrives this debut novel, Much Lauded. She expected to like it and then was so disappointed with it. Um, and then she just sort of, the rest of it is really a kind of thumbnail sketch of the of the plot and then basically just picking out, um, you know, quotes from, from the book which she found to be bad writing mm-hmm. and making fun of them, essentially. Um, and, you know, she... She ends with kind of calling it M.A., creative writing speak. Um, And I think I just got a sense that she was perhaps not coming to it with an open mind. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, you get, sometimes you get a reviewer who already has has their own prejudices and their own problems, and then something comes to them and it just annoys them, Mm -hmm. you know? I think she read Charlene's CV before she... I, I, I'm, I, there's no way she could have said... She could have known that she did an MA unless she looked her up. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's easy to know. No, that's, 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 mm-hmm. th- that kind of stuff comes to you. Someone who writes blurbs about writers all the time um, with events uh, copy, that, that's all, often on the press release, you know? So, um, and that would come with a book. So especially the debut novelists, because they don't really have much to tell you about them. It's their first work. So anyway, it just seemed like she was, and this is where the most egregious reviews, I think, often go wrong. I mean, the kind of Rebecca Watts review of Holly McNish uh, in the PN Review, which is infamous, really, and Mm -hmm. and much, much, much worse. Yeah. Um, that, That also kind of does the same thing, but much, much more strongly. And essentially what it does is it takes this writer and their work and it kind of dehumanizes them. Um, It kind of makes them, it argues that they're part of... Which is ironic considering how personal the attacks are. Right. It's, but it says, it says, this is bad and it's bad. It's bad because its badness stands for this thing which is ruining literature. This Mm -hmm. is ruining poetry. Yeah. Um, which Rebecca Watts kind of, um, you know, that I don't think we've talked about that review. This happened what about six weeks, no. two months ago. No, we definitely. Yeah, haven't. but um, that it it's a very extensive review. Um, which I'll just read you a section of it here because it's this is the worst part. So she just she kind of quotes Holly McNish, and then she says, "If only Schopenhauer could have read Plum, it would have distracted him from his hatred of Hegel." It is such stuff as madman tongue and brain knot, the product of a, quote, mind with a limited grasp of denotation and the ways in which words can be combined to form meaningful phrases. Mm-hmm. So she's basically, several times in this review, calls Holly ignorant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, Holly is emblematic of this Rupi Kaur, and uh, she goes after, um, what's her name, the one, Kate, Kate uh, Tempest. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I said Atkinson. No, <laughs> Jesus, no. So, but it's she went obvious. for Kate Tempest. Oh, yeah, of course, in this review, because 
These are writers who have gotten big in spoken word, okay, in spoken word performance poetry, mm -hmm. um, who then published books. Holly's book was because, partly because she'd become so high, high profile as a performer, her poetry was picked up by Picador and edited by Don Patterson, who Rebecca Watts also goes after mm -hmm. in the interview. Um, and, you know, published as poetry. And she, Rebecca Watts is essentially saying, this isn't poetry. Mm -hmm. I was asked to review this, but I can't even review it because it's not poetry. It doesn't yeah. deserve the name. What they need to do, really, instead of saying, um, these writers are, are bad because of la 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 la, all they have to do, is, they, just, they could take that whole review and say, this writer isn't, is bad because they didn't go to Oxford. Well, I mean, I don't, you know, Rebecca Watts did go to Cambridge and Holly sure didn't. Did she? You know? Yeah. But I don't know that it's that simple. I think that... Um, I, could, I could have guessed that a million miles away. Well, anyway. I mean, look, I think that I don't disagree with some of what Rebecca Watts says about Holly's poetry, by mm -hmm. the way. Now, I like Holly. I've seen her perform. She's an amazing performer. But I don't think her poetry is best experienced in writing. Mm-hmm. Her place is on the stage, yeah. you know, and that's that's fine. I, you know, she makes some good points. I think about in in amongst all the vitriol, there's some good critical analyses of Holly's work, but you kind of can't see it for all the bitchiness. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also there's a little bit of bitterness here because this book has sold way I don't know how mm -hmm. much you know Rebecca Watts's debut collection sold but fuck all probably right Holly McNish I have never I hosted her last event in Manchester I have never seen such an excited packed to the rafters house of people ready for poetry yeah like and that's you know so you can imagine a poet who feels that they're you know doing real you know critical kind of critically important work in the tradition of great poetry they've studied poetry extensively, they've written many papers about it, um, and yet here they can't sell very many books because of course the market for that kind of poetry is very small. Well it's the same with with novels, um, and that's again, you can just tell, I, I, like I said, there's nothing, I know nothing about this Julie Meyerson person, but I can guarantee you she is a student of the Will Self school of literate, literary fiction is dying. Um, and, you know, I'm, for one, I'm one of those who's dancing on the flames. I, th I think, you know, the, the idea that something is read by many people automatically uh, setting it out as something that's uh, unintelligent, I think is really, I think that, that in itself is quite an, an ignorant stance. Well, sure it is, but... But by the same token, the fact that a book sells lots of copies and everyone reads it doesn't make it good. No. You know, and I think that the important well, thing about... Well, Dan Brown is a... Look, the important... But see, that's the thing, though. They, they lump uh, authors who sell a, a huge amount of books in with the ones who sell millions of copies who are shit. You know, they'll put, they'll put them in with the Twilight people and Dan Browns and the... Yeah. Um, and sorry, sorry, Twilight. I don't know why I picked it on you. Um, I can't remember the woman's name, but it doesn't matter. Fifty Shades of Grey... Yeah. That sort of thing. No, I know, but I mean, and I think here's the thing about reviews. So anyone who's been in the book business for a long time, like Julie Meyerson, um, you know, or the editors of the PN Review, um, they, you know, they have these sore points, you know, about the market. And 
particularly if, if you are, as many of these reviewers are, most of these reviewers are writers themselves. And I think that's something that we don't hear people talking about a lot is, what does it mean to review a book if you are also a writer publishing books, you know, publishing poetry? What does it mean to review poetry mm-hmm. or any kind of writing? It's, it's an uncomfortable dynamic sometimes. Now, right, I saw an impassioned plea on Twitter uh, this week which I actually retweeted from the Real Story account because it was, it was so spot on. It said, we'd love to get more book reviews. Here's some reasons why you as a writer should write a book review. You know, we get lots of short stories and everyone would rather get a short story published, but writing a review is much better for you in a way. It, it is a, tra- a chance for you to kind of hone your critical skills and you know, offer your opinion about a piece of writing. Close reading, the close reading you'll have to do in writing the review and forming an opinion about the book is so beneficial to you as a writer. Mm. Um, and it kind of allows you to showcase your critical mind, you mm-hmm. know, which is really incredibly important. Plus, you're supporting another writer and you're supporting a publisher. It's, it's interesting that you say supporting a writer because I think a lot of times especially with smaller publications, like free publications or whatever, they don't want negative reviews. So you get, you know, you have to, you know, search through the review to actually get a, a good idea of what yeah. this person thinks about the book. Because they, don't, they need the people that write these books, these big name writers, to be on side with them because then they, they need to sell magazines, right? Yeah, no, there's, there's certainly an element of that too. Um, and it's so... The Rebecca Watts review, you know, as much as I, I don't like what she did and think it's bullshit, you know, I think there is a place. We need critical reviews. We need reviews that aren't just going to be all mealy mouth and say, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. this is great. You know, maybe parts of it weren't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, you know, most reviews are just a synopsis with a few choice quotes a bit of background. I mean, you could put it together. It's a formula. A bit of background about the writer, a few choice quotes, synopsis, and you know, a f- maybe something clever at the end. Yeah. But most, you can write a review without actually making clear what you thought of the book, whether it worked for you or not. Mm. And I think that that's what a lot of writers, particularly writers who are just starting out or maybe have published one thing or haven't published anything, they kind of have this humility of, oh, well, what do I know? I can't mm-hmm. make a judgment. This is a published work. Yeah. How could I possibly opine? Me. That's, you know? how, that's exactly how I feel. And, you know, that's bullshit. Mm. Like, you, your opinion is just as valid as anyone else's as an intelligent reader. Mm. Um, because that, that is what we are seeing with someone writing a book review is their reading, you know, their yeah. judgment of it. I think, you know, writing, like, I totally agree that writing a review helps your own writing because you can see things in other people's work. And like you say, taking like a, a close read of something uh, is ex- extremely helpful. What I don't understand is what people get from reading reviews. Oh, I read reviews all the time. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't understand. Like, there's never, I've never read something that made me think, Oh, I, I'm, I want to. I don't want to read that book. What? Are you kidding me? No, and I, plus I think it ruins it for me as well. It, I don't like. You, with movies, it's different though for some reason because I don't. I don't. I don't for me, films. I just. I'm, they're quite throwaway. I think this things might have to, something to do with the kinds of books you and I read. I don't know. Like spoilers isn't really a thing. No, for me. it's they're not for me either. 
Um, it's not. It's not about the book being spoiled. It's about my opinion being unfairly tweaked before I. Oh, I see. Read saying. the thing. Like, okay. I, because I, I, I would. I, I know for a fact that if I read a bad review of something, like for instance, this one. I, if it was, if it didn't get so much, you know, Twitter response, I'd probably go. Ooh, I'm not going to read that. Yeah. Well, I mean, look. If you had the experience of reading a review, getting the book. And then being like, oh, no, th- this isn't what the review said at all. This isn't what I was expecting. No, because I never do. Okay. See, I have. Yeah. Um, most often, it's some really positive review, and then I get the book, and then I think, yeah. whoa. You know, and that, the other thing to keep in mind here is it's often an insider job. You know, mm-hmm. the person reviewing the book yeah. knows the author or is friends with yeah. him, or they have the same publisher, the same yeah. agent. You know, there's something going on there. Yeah, it's the um, same with quotes on the book, and that, to be honest, that sways me quite a lot as well. The blurb. The not just the blurb, but the the quotes, the um, the things that other authors or yeah, that's called others. a blurb. No, the blurb is the back is the descrip- description of the book. That's the blurb. Blurbing the book it means giving a quote. Maybe, but yeah. when you're talking about a book blurb, that is the bit that just okay. the back that describes okay. what the book is. I got asked is. to do that for the first time the other day. Yeah, it and sucks. I was like, Hmm. Yeah. Boil your, 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 however many thousand, 70,000 words down to a single paragraph and don't give anything away. It's impossible. Well, but I was asked to do it for a book that I haven't read yet. It's oh, still it's... in manuscript form. Oh. That's being published. Oh, so you're talking about your yet. opinion on it. Yeah. Rather than the no, blurb. They wanted the a quote from right. me. And I haven't read the book yet. <laughs> so I was kind of like, well, send it over. <laughs> And they said, and "Do we need to just say something nice? Is that what is that what you're saying?" Well, I'll, I'll read it, and if I don't like it, yeah. I'm just gonna have to go back and be like, "Sorry," and that's gonna be embarrassing, right? Yeah. Like, "Sorry, I can't, bl- I can't blurb your book because I didn't like it." Wow. Right? Ooh. Harsh. Yeah, that sucks. I want to know who it is now, but maybe when the podcast goes well, off. Well, it's. I don't know who would want me to like. My, I don't exactly have a name to conjure with. When yeah. It comes to book so jackets, exactly, like right? who's gonna look at open a look at the front of a <laughs> book and go? Kate Feld, who the? Yeah, Kate Feld thinks this is amazing. <laughs> oh, great! But to be fair, half the time they're names that I don't recognize anyway. I just think, oh, that must be a writer because it doesn't have the name of the newspaper underneath. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I get totally sucked in by that, and uh, nine times out of ten, it's a mistake. But I, it doesn't matter. I don't care about reading a buy. Books are so cheap. That I don't mind buying one, reading halfway into it, hating it, and just saying that forget this and then give it away to someone else. Yeah. Or to Oxfam. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. That's reviews sorted. That's reviews. They're good. Write them. Read them. Okay. Yep. You didn't mention the lit mag, that one that is doing the call out for book reviews. Um, because I can't remember the name. Okay. It was I think it was called the Castle or something like oh, that. Right. Okay. Um. Over in America, maybe. Okay, we'll find it and yeah. put a link to it. Um, there's other things that I've got written down here. Um, there's the master classes versus workshops. You, I couldn't decide. I, I ran this by you before, and I can't remember if you actually wanted to talk about it or not. I'm happy to talk about it, Rob. Okay. Uh, there's also there there's been some this is another Twitter thing that's been going around about how masterclass they masterclasses are quite these expensive things and you you've been on a couple haven't you No I've never been on a masterclass okay. I went on an Arvin course once Okay which is I guess 
similar. Um, yeah. But master classes, to my mind, are usually in London or somewhere like that, um, or in a city, and it can be a multiple, like it's either a one-day intensive thing or a course over several weeks. Right. Um, but usually there's a very big author, well-established, well-connected author, yeah. and the implication it's very expensive, and the implication is you're sort of buying access to the right. literary establishment. Right. Um, whereas workshops, which are what I tend to teach, um, run with the real story, and also go on myself as a punter, mm-hmm. are usually much cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> quicker, only two or three hours. Um, and kind of, you know, a bit more practical, a bit, a bit more like a guided writing exercise. You right. Know? Um, so that's that's the kind of thing that I prefer. Um, uh, to to teach or to take both, I would say. Okay. Um, I I did an online course. A couple. I've done a couple of online writing courses over the years. Mm-hmm. One with Lit Reactor in America on. Uh, personal essay and one with the poetry school uh, just last year on the lyric essay with Nur al-Sadir, which was amazing. Um, that's an online course. And if you're after, as I was, a very kind of niche kind of writing, no one's going to do a poetry, like a lyric essay one day workshop here in Manchester. No. But I was able to do it online with mm. an amazing writer. And, and I got a lot out of it. Oh, right. So I would say, yeah, the Poetry School runs some, some great online courses. Yeah. I was, um, do you know about the Northern Short Story Festival? Yes. They do a bunch as well. Yeah, well, you often get workshops at festivals, ah. you know. Um, so, like, I'm doing a workshop in May. I think there might be a few places left yeah. uh, at this Alti Word Fest, which is a new festival starting up in Altrincham. Oh, I'm doing right. a life writing workshop. What is that? Um, what is life writing? R- writing about your life? Yeah, is it, is it's writing as that? from life. Oh, yeah. right, okay. So pers- it's going to be sort of like a personal essay, short mm-hmm. lyric prose from your own life, autofiction, that kind of stuff. Mm. So, yeah. Autofiction. That auto-fiction. comes up a lot. That's, that's, that, that's, who did I just talk to about that? Joanna Walsh. Joanna Walsh, yes. I'm that's guessing. Right. Yeah, correct. <laughs> she, yes, she's... Uh, don't get excited. That podcast doesn't come out until June. Okay. Yeah, I'm well ahead on the guests, man. They're coming thick and fast. Excellent. Um, we I, there's also the the report on pay in publishing that I wanted to talk about as well, and the whole kind of working class writers. So, or, what did the report on pay in publishing say, Rob? Well, it said there's a. It, I mean, it's it's long and there's loads of stuff, but the headline is that uh, people of working class origins only make up twelve and a half percent of the sector, the publishing sector, which is a surprise to nobody who actually is in the literary world and in some capacity. But I, do you know what? That's a lie. I think that's, it's even lower than my cynical brain assumed it would be. Of course, the, my first question is, what, how are they defining working class? Exactly. Right? Do you know what it is? Is it self-identifying? I, do you know what? I think what? it is. I okay. think it's comprehensive schools, people who go to comprehensive schools. Yeah, this is not something that you or I really understand no. at all, this comprehensive schools thing. The thing is, it, it's basically, I think it's ba- what the schools we would have gone to. Yeah, but like because, high school. Yeah, but like right. because they're all comprehensive, I suppose. You do have like private schools, especially where, from around where you are. Imagine there's loads. We, where, honey, where <laughs> I live, that's where the private schools are yeah. that people who don't live 
where I live send their kids yeah. to. I don't really know anyone who yeah. goes to those schools, like maybe one or two people. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, like, it's here, it's just a measure of how much this, the establishment is focused on London and the upper class mm-hmm. citizens of London that, like, a comprehensive or not is even a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I just, in a bigger country like America or Canada, you just have schools. Mm-hmm. And then there is like a small subset of that that's like a private school. And that's like, you know, a very, very, very small niche. Yeah. Um, whereas here. I think it's even small. Like in Canada, I can't even think of any. I'm sure they're more out east because I'm from out west and we, we're. <laughs> what was I going to say there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We know what you are, Rob. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. And here, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. How much, like, yeah, apparently the publishing industry is dominated because it's in London and is dominated by people who went to private schools. Yeah, well, grammar schools are a big... they call public schools here. Yeah, I know, I don't get that either. That makes absolutely no sense. For me, it just seems like one of those tough things that public, they call it public schools just to sound like they're, you know, one of us or something. I have no idea why they would call it public. You, You would think... That if you're going to these schools because you are uh, a great literate person, type, whatever, I can't speak, um, then you would think that you would give it a name that made sense. Oh, well, don't expect, don't expect these people to don't make, make sense, fuck, my friend. Don't, make, don't let anything in this country make sense. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so yes, we've, we've been hearing this for years um, that publishing is dominated by very privileged white Londoners who all mostly went to Oxford or, you know, very high-performing universities. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that's pretty much... I think it's also grammar schools as well, though. Like, yeah. We're the two, the least best-equipped people I know, this is... People, talking British about, people listening to this are probably just going to be cringing this whole time. It's, <laughs> like, it's like asking... I don't... I, I can't even think of an analogy. Asking us to talk about meat pies... Yeah, no, no. But, I mean, I think we can talk about this in the context of the Northern Fiction Alliance. Yes. um, Because this relates to um, a letter that they published this week. Manifesto. A manifesto. Essentially calling on publishers to to change things up, move north, um, make an an effort to diversify their workforces. Yeah. um, And you know, calling on people who are already based in London, you know, working in publishing to do things like offer a spare room to a, a young, impoverished, you know, <laughs> publishing wannabe and pay their interns and kind of I know, new hires the London living wage, yeah. which is barely a living wage in yeah. London. Um, I mean, like, I can't believe they don't all do that already. That just seems insane to me. I don't know how people live in London at all. I just don't get it. It seems like such a foreign concept to me, unless you're a millionaire. I don't know why people live in London. Yeah, me neither. It doesn't make any sense. Um, But but the fact remains that that is where publishing is done. And I've had contact with the publishing industry extensively over the years. And, yep, it's it's a very different vibe um, down there. It didn't make me... At no point have I ever said, oh, that seems like a fun life. Yeah. Wish I could do that no. with those folks. No. I am so happy that we're here and that more publishers... And broke. 
Yes, but we're real, Rob. We're real <laughs> yes. artists. They'll and never it, take our integrity. That's right. Um, but, you know, the thing is that, you know, we have had more publishers moving up north, obviously, uh, and other stories moved to Sheffield. Uh, Tilted Axis moved to Sheffield. We've got Dead Ink in Liverpool. These are all ind- independents, though, aren't They're they? They're indies. And, you know, Random House ain't going to move up here, you know? Well, you never know. Maybe they'll find, uh, you know, some posh bit of the media city that they can put a satellite office in. I doubt it. Spinning fields. I mean, I think that there's, you know, so they published this letter, and it's kind of like, okay, yeah, great. Um, good bit of publicity mm-hmm. for the Northern Fiction Alliance. And of course, I agree with them, but it seems it all seems a bit toothless to me. Yeah. Like, who's going to do this? The literary establishment in London likes things just fine the way they are. Yeah. Um, and I see like the chances of any of the major publishers moving north are it's like well, a Nobel's chance in hell. Yeah. You know, like it ain't going to happen. No. Look, it's a very savvy bit of marketing. Yeah. You know, they got all the things, that, like, Kama got one thing, mm-hmm. Dead Ink got one thing, that, you know, like, come to these things and support. You got to do it any way you can, literally, like, trying to get coverage in the Nationals or the bookseller of anything we're doing outside of London. This is, you actually have to write a freaking manifesto every time, Rob, yeah. in order to get any kind of coverage, you know? And so more power to him. Yeah, good. The thing is, I quite like the fact that it's indies. It's, it feels cool rather than, you know, and every time, I, I shouldn't say, oh gosh, how much can I say because I, I need these people. But I was going to say... <laughs> Go on, Ron. I, <laughs> I was going to say that a lot of time the people that you interact with from the London publishing scene they can often be difficult. Well, look, like anyone else, some of them are lovely and some of them aren't. But the fact remains that None of them, whether they're lovely or terrible, seem terribly bothered about anything that's happening outside of London. No. Um, I'll tell you one thing. Change. I've not met someone in Northern Publishing yet who's a prick. Yep. It's, it's, I've got a 100% record of nice people. Wow. Also poor people. And broke. That's why <laughs> it's, it's humbling. Absolutely not two wooden nickels to rub together. Yep. Well, you know, you won't go wrong. No. Like I said, you can't uh, sell out if no one's buying. <laughs> um, the one thing I was going to mention, uh, Becky Thomas, who's an agent at Johnson & Alcock, she does a, an excellent job on Twitter. She, there's this Twitter stream, I'll link to it, um, talking about her uh, experience of the kind of London-Oxbridge publishing scene. Because I don't know if, she, if she, I, I don't know her background, but she didn't seem she seems to be an outsider. I think she went to a comp school. She said, well, her whole Twitter f- stream, this whole thread of hers, is about essentially she went to a comp. She's coming out as someone yeah. who went to a comprehensive, and there's a very funny bit where she was like, and it was a long time because she she grew up in London, so she didn't have the, the impediment of having to find a cheap place to live in London because right. she lived with her family while yeah. she was you know entry level publishing person making less than, you know, someone who worked at the hair salon down yeah. the road. Um, but she said some really funny stuff in there. Like, she, she couldn't figure out why everyone had pinky rings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> her publishing company or agency or wherever it was she was working. Um, but, yeah, it was essentially her saying, I work at a comprehensive, and I can count the number of people, the other Which agents and publishing folk in London I deal with who went to comprehensives on one hand. Yeah. She said she's been in meetings where she was the only person in the room who didn't go to boarding school. Yeah, yeah. Like, and that's, 
I'm sorry. In 2018, boarding school fucked up. Yeah, I know boarding school. I think and this is why you wonder why all this boring middle brow, you know, fiction, literary fiction gets published. This yeah. is why because these people have zero experience of the world. Yeah, they don't know it's shit. Yeah, because they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. You know. And then these are the ones that have the fucking nerve to write nasty personal reviews about people who do. Well, look, we don't know anything about anyone's <laughs> background. We're not going to, you know... <laughs> I think we can't, we can't backtrack now, Kate. No, I'm just saying, just because someone went to Cambridge, you don't know, you know, they could have... We don't know anything about their family background. We can't make these assumptions. But know? the thing is, we can, because it doesn't hurt them. It doesn't hurt them, but, you know, they could have gotten in... They could be from, you know, a very working-class family. and It doesn't hurt them, it's true. I want to see how many are from Stoke. Give me those numbers, Cambridge. I suppose we should talk a little bit about the man who's actually on this podcast, in this podcast interview. That would be Danny Denton. Danny Denton, correct. He, uh, I met with him, gosh, probably two months ago now. Irish writer, dystopian fiction. He wrote a book called The Early King and the Kid in Yellow, which I loved. Yeah, um, well, can I borrow it? Yes. Do you have it? You know, you, you've borrowed my Rosie Garland book, and I don't... Have you read that yet? I have read it, and I'll bring, I'll give it back to you. I can't remember if I got Rosie to sign it. Did I? Is it signed? I don't know. I have to find her again. Get her to sign it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Yes, you can. Is the answer? Okay. Okay. Good. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. So it's a it's it's an excellent book. God, he's good. I really loved it. And we the good thing about this, our chat ties in really well to his. Um, He's got a different. He's got a really zen view of reviews. Oh yeah. So, yeah, he got a couple stinkers. Um, or I shouldn't say stinkers. That's unfair. Um, he got one from the stock Scotsman, which I won't talk about now. We talk about it quite a lot in the interview itself, which was quite funny. Um, but he, the, the, you know you're in trouble when the reviewer starts the review by saying, uh, this is, uh, people who like this sort of thing will like it very much. Oh, yeah. This sort of that's thing. That's always good. Yeah, which you don't expect from a Scot. Do you not? <laughs> I guess there's snobs everywhere. I'm making uh, judgments again, generalizations. You're making, yeah, yeah, you are making judgments. I, I feel like I, I'm allowed to because I'm foreign and I get it every single day. If we, listen, if we didn't make generalizations, we wouldn't survive in this weird place, no. right? Hey, I, I have some news though. Oh, what? I got my UK passport. Oh my God. That's right. Just call me Kate Two Passports Fell. Which one have you got? Is it the maroon one or oh, the yeah. new blue one? It's the maroon one. Oh, the... Made in the UK. That's yeah, right. that's the funny thing. You've got the made in UK one, but that's the bad one because it's a European passport. Passport, passport. No, I want the European passport. Yeah. I want it to say... No, 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 I'm saying bad yeah. to these Brexiter types. But the new one, I'm trying to get my head around this whole, I don't understand why this passport thing is even a, a, a thing to illustrate why Brexit is good or bad. Like, if the passport, if the color of your passport is what made you vote Brexit, you really need to pull your head out of your ass. But anyway, the new passport is made in, the, in France, but that's the British one. And the British one is, well, the one that's made in Britain is the European one. Yeah. I got that right? Well, uh, okay. My understanding of this is that until currently, uh, the the contract for making British passports, the current red ones, which say Europe on them, um, are that's 
fulfilled by a British-based company. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the government bid out the contract to make the new blue ones, which will just say UK, and a French company won it. Yeah. Um, so, so I have got it right The then. irony. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Oh, right. Like, these passports don't exist yet. Because, oh, right. of course, we, we're still in the European Union. Yeah. Um, but there's obviously was a huge controversy about it. I don't understand British people, and I never will. Yeah. yeah. More generalizations. Yay. <laughs> Come to us for literary generalizations. Yes. If you want to know what I think of all British people, come yeah. ask me. I'm not going to say so on the podcast. I'll say nice things. Yeah. We have to, don't we? Yeah. They make us. But you should hear what we say afterwards, guys. Wow. OMG. Yeah. You wouldn't, you would, you would hate yourself. It makes me hate myself. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, did we talk enough about Danny? I think so. Well, his book is great. I have very little to add because I haven't read his book. Yeah, you I, should read it. Yep. And um, he is a, a very, speaking of lovely people, you will tell immediately. Oh, that's another thing. Never met an Irishman I didn't like. Yeah. Ever. Huh. Yep. And I know two of them. <laughs> and they're both coming on the podcast. It's well, a, that's fixed, it's, you know, the, well, your percentage that's is That's right. Not, I'm batting a thousand. <laughs> so British people don't know what that, is, that means. Uh, but yes, so this is actually the two Irish writers podcasts back to back. It's oh, my Irish writer right. extravaganza. Joanna is Irish. No. Yeah. Joanna's Irish as well. Well, she is technically, I believe. God, it's, that's three then. Yeah, I think she might be. Is she? She might have been born in Ireland or We need there. to check that to make yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Really? Yeah. Oh wow! So it's. Um, I think this... she identifies as Irish, right? Although she lives in Oxford. Hmm. So yeah. Well, there you go. So it, hope you like Irish writers because there's loads. How could you not like Irish writers? Yeah, but it, it, the thing is, right? Because this is this podcast is meant to be uh, featuring the Northwest. One of them actually lives here. Okay. In Manchester. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I need to justify it. Who's that? Uh, Queeve McDonald. He's okay. the second guy. He's, he's going to come on and talk about self-publishing. What was that name? Queeve. Yeah, spelled... I'm just going to let C-A-I... That... I know. Do you know, I was... I, he doesn't... I don't know if he knows what that word means in North America. And I, did, I didn't have the guts to tell him. I've, I've known him for a long time. Well, it's not that exact... It's Wait, close. It's close. It's and I don't close know if, enough to make you think... I don't know if we should even... We shouldn't even be talking Talk about, about that. No, let's change the subject. <laughs> so go on, do. carry on, sorry. Okay, so this is now uh, me and Danny Denton talking about his amazing book and reviews and Ireland and Irish writers and loads of Irish stuff. So you will like it. Listen. to write a book in which it rained okay uh, in every scene so like if you think of movies like in the mood for love blade runner you think of rain um 
and that that kind of becomes the mood of the piece or whatever the mood of your memory of the piece so I just always I love rain I enjoy it unlike probably everybody else on earth well you are Irish so (laughs) you have to like yeah yeah yeah, you have to kind of love it says the man who lives in Manchester (laughs) Um, but yeah so I I always wanted to write something that was set in rain so I was sketching little bits and pieces when it eventually came to writing this just it just became dystopian. It just like came out to me in an Ireland where it always rained. If I was going to go extreme on it, which mm-hmm. I decided I was, things would be slightly different. Like you'd have to have um, trains would be kind of elevated off the ground a little bit. People would have to have better rain gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I started kind of asking all those questions of this rainy place I was creating, it just became dystopian. Probably because I've kind of started harping on about this a little bit and very different interviews and things. We Perfect for a we, podcast. Harping on is exactly what we want. We kind of live in a dystopia. Like, it's not a... People still, in in terms of the concept of dystopia, we still think of it as a possible future, but I actually think it's the lived present. You know what I mean? Yep. My, uh, my follow-up question was, do we have Donald Trump to thank for this book? No. Donald, Donald Trump is like, you know... It's just a symptom of everything else that's wrong. Like, obviously, yep. he's a really ugly, uh, pathetic symptom, but, like, he's not the cause. He's, yeah. You know what I mean? He's the... Result. He's the blackhead, like, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, what a great description. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so, yeah. Um, it was just there. It was all around me when I started looking around and started pulling things. And I, and I knew I was going to tell a kind of... I knew it would be... I don't know, someone like, let's say Cormac McCarthy, because it kind mm-hmm. of is nicer. Uh, it's a, it's a gra- headline grabber. Someone like Cormac McCarthy said something mm-hmm. about fiction should be about life and death. It should be like, you know, r- important. It should be of, of, of massive import. Um, and uh, so I knew it, my story was going to be kind of like that. And once you take someone who's in a life or death kind of situation or, or life changing situation, I guess somehow ended up in dystopia. Yeah. So I, it's funny you say that because I do. There are parallels between yours and the road. I think, um, possibly. Yeah. Well, mainly. I, I mean, um, I say a father like because it's the father and son, and yours is is that sort yeah. of thing as well. That seems to be quite uh, a common and strange uh, development in the world of science fiction. A lot of children are coming into into play. Like it, there's a lot of like, Megan Hunter, another person I had on this uh, podcast. She's written a book, and hers, she says almost exactly the same thing you did, that she, she didn't choose to be, to be dystopian. It just kind of worked out that way. It started with a mother and child in a situation that was difficult. Yeah, I got my... So I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure why it happens. In my, my personal instance, it was kind of chance, because... I was, uh, and this again is something I've mentioned a few times in different things, I was in a waiting room in a doctor's or a dentist's looking at the uh, magazines and the cover was a 12-year-old boy who'd become a dad. And there's a picture of this 12-year-old boy, like a child, holding a baby. And uh, that kind of is how my story started. I was like, just, wow, that's like, how do you... How would I react? How, how could I? What? Well, how can you be a father when you don't even know what it's like to be a, a full human being? Kind of, you know, you're still in development. Uh, you're still a, well. I suppose we're always working in progress, but mm-hmm. yeah, you're just you're so raw. Um, and that's how it started for me. So I didn't particularly. I didn't decide that 
a child would be a great symbol of uh, innocence or you know a kind of a reminder that we're leaving the world behind for the generations to come but it kind of ends up like that and yeah you're right the road the road Megan's book like yeah it's a uh, I guess maybe there's something to do with a loss of innocence mm. I'm not sure and I think it but there's also another an extra sense of danger when yeah when there's a child involved yeah there's you know? something to protect yeah well. yeah um, your book is also quite experimental I think and it, very experimental for a debut novel kind of nice to hear yeah, yeah. I, like, I think that's I like, good I like the label yeah. well I think it's I think it's quite a brave thing to do because you and I think it works really well as well I should should also say um, but it, you know things like the fact that there's a play in the yeah, book in yeah. different parts and there's you know you, you even the little things like the speech marks I'm not going to do speech marks I'm going to have backslashes instead um, and it, you know the chapter is being called bit from something yeah yeah I'm a believer I'm a fond believer in the in the notion that the work will the work will form itself if you give yourself over to the work it'll it'll show you how it should be shaped it'll show you how it should be built um, and uh, I had a couple of early kind of in the drafting of the early King and the Kid in Yellow, the early drafts, I kind of had a couple of missteps and a couple of mistakes. I went down some wrong alleys. About 80 pages I had written uh, were from the kid's point of view uh, as an old man looking back and stuff. Mm. And I kind of started to realize as I tried on different, say, narrative forms, uh, I started to realize that actually this would would be a book of many narrative forms because if you're trying to recreate something that happened many years ago there's going to be many different ways to recreate it um, it's also a bit of a tension killer isn't it if you know that the character survives ought to be an old man in that in that case yeah but in that, the focus of the story was different at that point I think um, when he when it was in first person it was about it was kind of almost slightly yeah there was a different focus um, but as to whether he would survive or not, um, but uh, but yeah, it's like I was in Cheatham Library today, mm -hmm. and in Cheatham Library there uh, there's a there's this the old myth that John Dee, the, the the astrologer to Elizabeth the First or whatever, he tried to he famously tried to conjure the devil in in Cheatham Library. Um, and John Dee, uh, there are several historical books written about him. I think there are a couple of novels. Uh, and Damon Albarn of Blur fame famously wrote a Chinese opera about <laughs> John Dee. And so if you were to say uh, in, a, in, a, in a ruined world and records are partial and you know the data centers have been destroyed, if you were to kind of maybe do some kind of primitive search for John Dee in a, in a thousand years time or 200 years time, you might get scraps of the opera, you might get scraps of the historical book, you might get, uh, someone might tell you who they thought he was, um, you might get a piece of the novel and that's how you would rebuild the myth of John Dee, mm. right? Uh, so that was in my head that that could happen and in Ireland there's a lot more local incidents of this like say things like 1916 Rising, James Joyce, uh, there's a famous rugby match in which Munster beat New Zealand in 1970-something. And if you, I think apparently there's 4,000 people at the game, but if you asked everyone in Ireland now, Millions. we at the game, they were like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 600,000 at the game. Yeah. <laughs> and there's plays about that game and stuff. So mm -hmm. if you're going to recreate, if you're going to recreate a story that's kind of become a myth, you'll do it in loads of different ways. And that kind of, the more I wrote, the more that dawned on me. And all of a sudden there was like, there'll be a, a 
it's just like there'll be a play I've mm -hmm. got to write some scenes from a play because this is the way they would try it and this is the way they would pull it and there'll yeah. be this that and the other and that it kind of yeah I listen and the story told me how it would be that's kind of sounds a bit glib but right so how fast. long into the story were you before St. Vincent de Paul made in <laughs> made in uh, an appearance St. Vincent de Paul was in it from the very start but uh, he was not so much in focus early on there was a in an early draft there was a much larger narrative about how how um, how a particular fire would start in the book um, and there was much more focus on a kind of a, a named individual and that and went into that individual's kind of backstory so to speak and it kind of became apparent uh, both to my own mind and with the help of a really good editor um, became apparent that that was a large there were large digressions that weren't needed mm -hmm. and so St. Vincent de Paul kind of became this uh, became became more of a symbolic presence than a than a character presence I guess mm -hmm. but yeah St. Vincent de Paul was always there and uh, like are St. Vincent de Paul uh, are they an, uh, an entity in, in the UK you know you shouldn't you shouldn't ask me these things because I was uh, acting really smart just then the only <laughs> reason I know he is an actual person is because someone in a review that I read uh, told okay. me that. <laughs> so St. Vincent de Paul, to give you another... You couldn't let me get away from that. <laughs> St. Vincent de Paul, to give you another bit of background, is a charitable entity uh, in Ireland now. So people who are in need of a couple of hundred quid for their Christmas shopping they go to St. Vincent de Paul and there's loads of charity shops named after St. Vincent de Paul. So that was a lot of fun mm -hmm. to say that, well, these wonderful charitable people will actually become vigilantes who mm -hmm. will burn everything in sight. Yeah. It's interesting that that's... A, because in a in a really in a kind of a really dark way, he does help the poor in your yeah, book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how much more we should say about that. So <laughs> I've got this question that I've written down, and I, I don't know if I should ask you it because it just seems like such a stupid thing to ask. But why are Irish writers so good? Uh, why it's really annoying. You seem to, and I, I know this is an embarrassing question. It's a question I that you no don't idea. really. I have no idea. But it um, just seems that, especially the prose in your book, I think, is where it really sings. And it's it just seems like it's... I don't know if it was a really natural process, but it feels like it was really natural. Just the way it, the, the prose flows. It was really hard work. Okay, And, and thank you for the compliment. It's really nice of you. Uh, it, like, that's 12... Like, I wasn't writing this novel for 12 years, but that's 12 years writing every day trying to get to a particular level. Why good, Irish? I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why Irish writers are so good, I have no idea. And I have no idea if that's true. It feels true to me. I, read, me. I read much more Irish writers because, you know, because I'm from Ireland. I tend to have access to much more Irish writing than English writing, American writing. Um, I think it's, a, it's, it's definitely a much higher hit rate. We have a, we have a really, really... People like there's there, there used to be this thing about you'd always read it in interviews. People feel like they were in the shadow of Joyce and stuff like that. But if you think about it in a different way, if you kind of invert that, we have like really really cool people to uh, want to emulate. Like you know, Mike McCormick used this term, and I've been ramming it off him since the Holy Trinity of of Joyce, Beckett, and Flann O'Brien. I mean, like what kind of idol? Like what idols have? What standards to try and reach? Like, and I don't know, like the. See, the, the person, like, this is how my brain works. I'd find that incredibly intimidating. And, it, uh, and I'd be like, oh, why, do, why even bother? Trying it's, not, it's not intimidating for me because you know you'll never get there. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, but you can take loads of inspiration from it. You're like, I'll, yeah. I'll, never, I'll never do that. It's almost like the pressure is off. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like if you're, 
It's like if you're Sunday, if you're pub Sunday United and you're playing Manchester United, you're never going to win. So you can go out and enjoy it, and you yeah. can, but, but you can be inspired by watching them or whatever. And maybe it's yeah. the same thing. Um, I think that's a perfect analogy. And we've got loads of extra time to write because it's generally pretty miserable in Ireland. <laughs> so we've got extra time to practice. Um, <laughs> that is such a shit answer. There's no way that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly, I don't know, and and I hope it's true, because um, it would be good to be from that. Kind it, you of can't, scene. you can't not deny. It. You can't say like it, it's certainly a higher hit rate when you have a country with that sort of that small a population. Yeah, yeah. with that many, you I know, guess so. Giants in the tradition, maybe. Yeah, in the tradition way weighs in our favor or something. Yeah, like but then you like an Irish publisher hasn't been able until this year to submit to the Booker Prize. Well, I think so they that, kept. That's kind of. Well, like, see, I, I think they just, I think they kept you guys out because then you just win the prize every. <laughs> um, right, right. Now that I've said nice things to you, uh, what do you think of reviews? What do I think of reviews? Yeah. I... Now that this is your first kind of experience, I suppose, with uh, novel reviewers. Yeah, it is. Um, I read reviews mm-hmm. I enjoy reading reviews they don't always dictate whether or not I buy a book but I yep. can always tell if I want to buy a book probably from the review sure um, I think that so I had a very laid back attitude to this when I started I uh, by way of context I had a, another novel that I finished and that was kind of I had an agent for and it did the rounds in London and it didn't quite make it and nobody wanted to buy it mm-hmm. and so I like that was a I spent five years writing that maybe a year and a half bit submitting it and that was ended in rejection and so I feel like there's no, I've had all the reject like you know in terms of that getting rejected 50 or 60 times before I got an agent and then getting the agent and that being rejected 15 or 16 times by publishers nobody can nobody can I've got a thick skin now you know it's really difficult to upset me um, and I, th- I said to people when before the book was coming out, I was like, I have a book out. This is my dream come true. I'm going to enjoy every moment of it. If I get a crap review, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And so far, it's kind of been like that. I haven't really had any properly crap reviews. I've had reviews that said good things and bad things. Mm-hmm. I've had reviews that said mostly bad things, but one or two good things. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I, I don't think I've had anyone on where I've read their reviews and they've been so across the board. Yeah, well, like disparate. I think there's glowing ones, and then there's other ones that, like the, the Scotsman one, I thought was incredibly, like, unbelievably unfair. The Scotsman one, though, was, and, and this is what why I probably I feel I still feel absolutely fine about all the reviews. The Scotsman one wasn't a problem with my book in particular. The gist of it seemed to be, why why are the, all these people who have a bit of talent writing books set in dystopias and fantasies? That was a problem with the idea of dystopia or it's, fantasy. That's exactly right. Which is, you know, well, he's, he started. He's, as, yeah. he's entitled to his. Like I've, I, I always bang on about this. The reader finishes the book. The writer puts it out there. The reader finishes it. And whatever way the reader finishes it, that's a truth because that's a subjective truth. Yeah, it's just as valid. His reading of the book is just as valid as someone who loves it. But his problem with the book wasn't a problem with my writing uh, say on a sentence by sentence there's nothing in there where I read it and went oh no he's right I'm mm-hmm. totally crap at yeah. imagery or my metaphor yeah. is messed up like he's just going I don't like this type of book yeah he start, so, that's how he started the review off yes. he said uh, you know oh people who like this sort of thing will really like it and you're like <laughs> that's those backhanded comments like, you just think why did they give this guy 
your book. Yeah, yeah, but maybe maybe his thing, maybe he wanted to, maybe it's a problem he has and he's, he wants to bang a drum about it. That's, reviews yeah. are used for that as well to, 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 to make a political point or a literary point or whatever. It's absolutely fine. And I actually, like a couple of people were like, you know, messaging me, slagging this guy off or whatever. Yeah. And I was thinking, he's entitled to his opinion. And actually that, he kind of wrote about it with care. Like he still treated the book with care. Mm-hmm. Um, he still said nice things about the writing. Like he gave the writing every chance. He didn't write me off. He just wrote yeah. off the style of book that it was. Yeah. And honestly, like I'm so far, I'm still sticking to my guns in that they're not affecting me in any way. Good, because um, it shouldn't, obviously. Because the one, no, not none has come in yet. And this, other writer friends are telling me, don't read your Goodreads reviews. Don't read your Goodreads reviews because yeah. they'll depress you and they'll hurt your feelings. And I'm reading my Goodreads reviews, and and it's yeah. really interesting to kind of um, to hear every opinion it, not necessarily people who have master's degrees or whatever in, in, in literary whatever mm-hmm. uh, people who just are able to say like are you allowed to swear in the podcast of course you are uh, please this do is, this is dog shit you know yeah. um, and, I, and I, again that reader is correct because they read it and they got dog shit so yeah. uh, and I've yet to read a Goodreads review that has made me not want to read the Goodreads reviews anymore it's hurt me so much yeah. so I'm like I'm out so I'll keep reading them I'm not yeah. going to be one of these people who says I don't read my reviews I put Goodreads reviews in the same categories as YouTube reviews it yeah. just it feels yeah. like the yeah. same thing it's just the people out there <laughs> that just feel like they should they have to comment on things but yeah. I, I suppose you know now that we've talked about a, a, your bad reviews the Irish Times one was quite yeah, yeah. Glowing. And you've got to treat those in the same way as well. Because someone says you're such and such, it doesn't mean you're such and such. They, you know, they just felt like that at that time or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it was really that was the one review actually I was nervous about. Because you get um if you're if you're in the uh, if you sign up to the mailing list or whatever, every Friday the uh, books editor emails you the Irish Times I think it's called the Irish Times Book Club email or something like that. The email you say, Here's what's being reviewed tomorrow. So I knew on Friday night I got this email that's Danny Denton's Early King and the Kid in Yellow will be reviewed and I had a really bad night's sleep and I really didn't think I was nervous but I think I was more nervous about all my pals would be reading it mm-hmm. and on come midday on, on the Saturday when it was out I was going to be getting loads of messages going like oh don't listen to her like yeah. she doesn't have a clue yeah. or I was going to be getting loads of well done you did yeah. okay yeah. so I think that's what made me particularly nervous about that but I, yeah was I happy to get a good review like absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah definitely was, and I think it's funny because I, I think people would would assume they're like, oh, he's an Irish writer, and it's the Irish Times. Of course, it's going to be a good review. But I think the opposite is true. Yeah, it, it depends. It depends that yeah, there have been a few chastening uh, reviews <laughs> for Irish writers by Irish people. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I don't feel you should be treated especially because you're Irish and you're being reviewed on Irish paper. You should just all you want. I think if you write a book and you get it reviewed. Is it the truth? All, all you want is that someone gives you an honest go, an honest chance. So even if they don't like it, they'll find yeah. like like I'm. I've got a couple of years teaching under my belt, and there's this thing that you always say something positive, even if your positive thing is I like the title. Yeah. You always give someone the positives with the negatives, and then, yeah. and then that way you're, you're being fair. Right. Note to self: really If Danny Denton <laughs> says he likes the title of my book, <laughs> yeah. it means it's shit. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's that's what all you're hoping for is, a, yeah. is an honest um, appraisal. Um, what, if, if anything, uh, were there any lessons that you learned from your first book that was rejected all those times? Is there something you took from that that you used in order to write yes, this one? absolutely. There was an overriding lesson that kind of stayed with me constantly. So the first book, the first book has its merits, 
and I think it could well have been published. Like it was very close on a couple of on a couple of counts. Um, and I think I wrote that book, and I wrote it from the be- with the best possible intentions. I wasn't being a fraud consciously, but I think I was writing that book to sound a particular way, to sound like a li- like literary fiction, to mm-hmm. sound like it should be published. Obeying the rules. Um, well, I was breaking rules, but breaking rules in a really safe way. So, yeah. like, I'm going to have one character that's quite wacky, and he'll go off in all sorts of tendons, but that's just my one character, and I'll always bring it back to realism right. with the second narrative mm-hmm. strand. Um, and just, yeah, I, like, I didn't, I'm not saying I did, I don't think I did too much wrong, but the, my, my, in the back of my mind, the driver in the back of my mind kept going, what will publishers think of this sentence? What will publishers think of this chapter, this symbol, this yeah. set piece? And um, I think I made a couple of changes that I shouldn't have made based on making it more publishable. So one of the, one of the pieces of feedback I got from a particular agent was such and such a character he doesn't have a clear motive and it's not really sure why he acts the way he acts it's not really clear why he acts the way he acts he could do with a motive and like young Danny desperate to be published runs back to the page backfills a, a dead girlfriend to right. get to, as a motive like yep. the corniest stupidest <laughs> motive you can have right um, and, and, and I just was so eager to be published that I did whatever I thought it would take to get published and uh when one of the rejections, which was actually Granta who went on to publish the book, one of the rejections was from Max Porter was along the lines of, um, write, write for the sake of the story or just write the book you want to write. Yeah. Stop trying to write the book other people were trying to write. And when, he, when we met, we met kind of a while after the, the rejection and he kind of said, oh, I love this bit in that book and I love that bit. And they were all the bits where I was just letting myself go. Yeah. And so the lesson then, the guiding kind of philosophy for the second novel was let the book dictate what kind of book it's going to be. Yeah. Don't write to get published. And I, I, I'm not saying I, would, I had given up on being published. I had given up caring about whether it would be published or not with the mm-hmm. second book. All I cared about was the first book was getting the book deal, getting yeah. the book deal. And the second book was like, I'm writing for writing's sake now because I've gone as far as I can go down the publishing road mm-hmm. and it didn't work out. But yeah. I'm still here writing. And that was really comforting to know that I was still writing. I was still a writer. Yeah. Um, and I just went for it. And that's what came out. And like, ironically, then that's yeah. the book that gets published. And plus, if, you, if you're getting advice from Max Porter, it's, <laughs> it's going to be yeah, good, yeah. isn't it? Gold. That's gold yeah, dust, yeah, that. Absolutely. How, how did that happen? Do you think that if you're... Do you genuinely believe that if your writing is good enough, an agent will spend the time, or the agent or you know someone, a publisher will spend the time developing you? Or do you think that, you know? I, I think it's probably there are fewer and fewer. I think there are loads of amazing writers out there who have been rejected. Uh, the ones who don't go away are the ones we get to read. Got you. So I would say that just because you're an amazing writer does not mean you will publish a book. But the longer you keep going, and everyone, other writers fall away, other mm-hmm. other people attempting to be published fall away. You will, you will get there, and it will. I think it will eventually get there. Mm-hmm. That's my story. Like you know, um, I probably got my first rejection for my first novel. Never mind short stories, like the thousands of short story rejections. But the first rejection for the first novel was two thousand and nine. And I was submitting constantly, like resubmitting that novel. Like, I'll go, I'll do another draft, I'll resubmit, I'll do another draft, I'll resubmit. And, uh, like, yeah, it just, 
eventually you eventually you get there but I'm, I think there's a huge amount of luck involved even the people who do get there yep um, I was really lucky in terms of Max uh, emailed so Max rejected the novel emailed the agent and said if Danny I'd love to chat with Danny about this at any point if he, if he if he's ever around and it just so happened I was lucky I lived in London and I said geez I'd love to meet Max this is before Max had a book or a book deal. Yeah. He, was, he was Max Porter up and coming publisher um, and uh, yeah he was just really really generous like Max just loves books loves the objects loves the writing <laughs> of them loves the reading of them he's, uh, he's the best person I've met in publishing hmm. Obviously, yeah, um, because he published me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, he was just a superstar. He was just really generous, and we chatted. We got on well. We like a lot of the same books, and it was, and that's where I kind of figured out a lot of this. That's where I started to figure out my mistake because he said I love, I loved X, and I loved Y, and I loved the bit where Z in your book, and I was like, God, they were the bits I really loved writing, but they were the bits where I kind of started to. Rest- and all the bits I restrained myself you know yeah. I was like this sounds too fun or this sounds too silly let's tone it back to literary um, and uh, so then yeah this, that's that's how I met him and we just yeah kept kind of in very occasional touch after that I'd fire him an email every now and again when I read his book for example mm-hmm. stuff like that um, but I'm very lucky to have had that experience but like all the great like like all the great football managers will tell you like you make you make luck by being constantly being there and constantly working you know yeah um yeah do you do you ever consider going back to that book and trying it again or i'm too i'm kind of got uh, so i have another book that's um probably one or two drafts away from being ready to submit and i'm really that's in the back of my mind all the time now so that's the focus the first book uh, is there lurks in the background I think you could sal- you could certainly salvage a publishable novel out of it would I want to I'm not sure as long yeah. as I'm excited by other things I don't think I'll go back Yeah. but it's there mm-hmm. if I want to go back what's the new book then? the new book is uh, it's really really crap to talk about because okay. um, it's got a question. really it's got a really boring <laughs> setup and also like it's really dodgy to talk about things you're working on because it could be completely different it could be completely different but also it, it, it could die in your mouth like yeah but I can say things about it I figured this out I can say that <laughs> I can say that I can say that it's about uh, voice it's about voice there's a there's a, a character in there he's a, he's obsessed with kind of uh, morning talk radio where people ring up to complain about what's going on on the street or whatever. Um, and he's obsessed with that, so it's, there's loads and loads of voices going on, so it's about voice, and it's about kind of a general transition, I think, from the body to the non-place. Is non-place like a common enough term? Now, like, say, non-places are places like airports, okay, uh, hard shoulders and motorways, places sure. where humans seem to be constantly gathering or passing through now but they're not really places, they're not villages, mm-hmm. they're not pubs, they're not like, you know, community hubs, they're, they're these kind of, uh, just kind of strange, uh, transient kind of places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of have this thing in my head that we're less and less body and more and more, in, we're in online spaces and we're in transit, mm-hmm. constant transit. 
commuting for you. Like, you know, I did my did my five years in London as we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. You become a commuter, you become a passenger rather yeah. than, you know. Well, if you live in um, London, the whole city becomes a non-place to you, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. Like you're Sorry, walking, London people. I don't <laughs> you, but you've kind of got like, and not just London's probably just an extreme example of it, but, but it's happening in Cork, where I'm from. You've kind of got like, eat, pret, boots, mm-hmm. repeat. Yeah. Eat, pret, boots, repeat. Yeah. So it's, there's this kind of, uh, the local is kind of dying, but yeah. in, in, in these radio voices, I got obsessed with these radio voices when we were living abroad. Because it was where I could hear my, I could, I could hear my own accent. I could hear Cork accents and stuff by listening to this radio show that I had previously hated. I used to say, anyone had it on at home, I'd be like, turn that off. Like, how can you listen to people moaning all day? Yeah. But actually, when you set it against maybe the way, I don't know, humanity. It sounds like a very broad statement, but the way humanity is going mm-hmm. into kind of online spaces, into like people lost in the glare of their phones, on passengers on trains or whatever yeah if you set this kind of very earthy like local accent giving out about sewage leak on the road giving out about um i don't know like the the market licenses the price of market licenses that kind of is the last resistance or yeah something. it feels like last resistance. so the new novel is kind of about that the resistance to um, a homogenous planet perhaps yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. just, I, just I, a disappearing it just feels yeah, like things i know are exactly what you mean i i was watching the Winter Olympics because I'm Canadian Absolutely, and I was watching the closing yeah. ceremony and this is I had this I know what you're talking about because I saw this I had this feeling where I saw these South Korean like bands playing you know shit rock music like Nickelbacky type stuff in the Winter oh, Olympics yeah, I just thought yeah. and they're dabbing as well and I just thought <laughs> what is wrong with this planet like it doesn't matter which where you are like everywhere is the same Ireland is like, so it, I, it, a lot of it probably comes from being away from Ireland as well for, I spent maybe seven or eight years away from Ireland um, and then went back Traitor. went back in 2016, <laughs> went crawling back in 2016, yeah. but uh, we've got these brilliant motorways now, so no matter if you're going from Cork to Dublin, Dublin to Galway, Galway to Cork, it doesn't matter, everywhere it takes two and a half hours now, Yeah, because you get on this motorway and oh this is so brilliant like I just get on the bus get on the motorway I'm gone I'm there then you realise all those towns that you used to stop in or drive through on the way they've, they've disappeared because yeah. they're now bypassed and like bypass is obviously a structural engineering term or whatever but it's also kind of a, a bit of a spiritual mm-hmm. term in that sense like, like all these they're just gone they're yeah. taken out of my field of vision I don't visit towns anymore I'm a passenger on a motorway yeah um, so it's kind of trying to figure that out France is an extreme example yeah. of that as well. It's unbelievable that people will pay to be on these roads because the tolls are massive. Yeah, but you they pay still, like 15 euros. I want to yeah, be yeah. on this road, and just because I'm a cheapskate, I just thought, well, fuck this, I'm not paying, you know, yeah. hundreds of pounds in tolls just to get where I want to go. I want to go on these little roads, and it's a different country. It's a, it's, a, it just blows your mind how good it is. But like you say, those places, you know. The towns are shut. The they're disappearing. Yeah, 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 because they need the business of yeah. you know, like there, there used to be this kind of symbiotic thing. Yeah. Um. So it's. I think it's. So it's trying to trying to figure that out on a page. Mm. Um, I think it sounds really yeah. cool. So you get. So this whole thing takes place on a the shoulder of a 
motorway then. No. <laughs> <laughs> Half of it takes place on the shoulder of a motorway. Does it? Sort of. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I think that's really, that sounds really interesting actually. So we'll see, yeah, we'll see. But I kind of, yeah, I'm at the point, so the narrative is, it's written, it's there, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of, uh, I can see too many problems at the moment to be confident about it being finished mm. and being good, you know, so yeah. I need to, uh, yeah, I need to focus on it, get down and focus on it for a few mm. months. Yeah, that sounds good. That's it. Thank you very much, Danny. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that was Danny Denton. And wasn't he great? He was. Yeah. yeah. Amazing, wasn't he? Yeah. Yep. Wonderful. Um, I, the, we've got loads of people coming up. We've got the other Irish guy that I... Cleve McDonald. And then we've got Joanna Walsh. And then we've got... I don't know. I, I, you know, I think he's sensitive about it as well. Nobody can pronounce it over here. Well, sh- shit, you better edit this stuff out. Nah, he's a, com- he's a stand-up comic. He's used to it. Okay, all right. Uh, and, he's a, and he's sold fucking shitloads of books. Okay. And he's got money coming out of, coming out the wazoo, this well, guy, Cleve. then he can afford a sense of humor. No, he? he's already got one, well and truly. His book is one of the funniest things I've ever read. But anyway, okay. So, Cleve McDonald, and then Joe... Is it Joanna Walsh? And then... It, we've got Kevin Duffy from Blue Moose Books. He's going to be on. Uh, he's the editor in Blue Moose Books. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, yeah. Editor, publisher, the lot. His um, the, his writer Ben Myers, who's been on this podcast. He's his book is just the Gallows Pole has just been nominated for the Walter Scott Prize. Great. So, which is a big deal. And we actually talk. We talk about that on the Ben Myers podcast. Many, 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 many moons ago. So if you want to hear what his thoughts were about the book that he was at the beginning of the process, you could listen to that. Look at you and your face. You're like, stop plugging your stupid shit, Rob. Okay, that's it. Bye. Bye.